The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club, where we read through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watch Amazon's upcoming Wheel of Time TV show, I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are my co-host, Katie Jarvis. Hey. Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. And Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 helps. Join us on Patreon at the Two Rivers tier, or join us at the $5 Tarvalon tier, and you'll soon get access to special bonus episodes where we talk about things like Wheel of Time short stories, graphic novels, video games, failed TV pilots, and more. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. For those unfamiliar, The Wheel of Time is an epic fantasy story about, well, well, it looks like I forgot to come up with something original for this week. So once again, we'll, we'll recap with the general sweep of there's a dark one, there's a prophecy, there's cycles coming and going. There's a bunch of kids who have to run away from home because a strange and powerful person showed up in the night. So I think you know the drill. Last time we talked about chapters 11 to 15 of the first book. Um, we saw the two rivers attacked by animalistic monsters called Trollocs. Moraine revealed herself. They went on the run. They got uh, o- over land and over river to the comfort of a small city, though large to our teenagers, called Berlin. They had some run-ins with Children of the Light, also called White Cloaks, learned more about the politics of the wider world, had a nighttime encounter with potentially the Dark One himself, form of all-too-real dream. This episode, we're digging into chapters 16 to 20, where the story takes a turn for the creepy. But first, I guess we could briefly comment on uh, on the new trailers that have been popping out, uh, several of them and several new teasers covering a bunch of different character aspects. I also saw my first Wheel of Time billboard on Venice Boulevard this morning, uh, broadly uh, showing Rosamund Pike in a very dramatic pose, uh, doing some Moraine play of power of some kind. So it's coming up real soon. We're we're getting real close to the premiere of the show. Anybody have any thoughts on the new trailers? I I would say my first thought was actually I was surprised that they called that first one we saw a teaser before, but that to me had much, much more of the story in it than the new one we got, which is interesting because this one was so focused on Moraine. Uh, Keely, I believe you you definitely saw it, right? But did you have thoughts on what we saw of that one so far? Yeah, and I actually am getting all of them kind of confused now because there is a new <laughs> video that was just released with uh, whatever his name is, Judkins, talking about the trailer and like specifically talking about different points. And so I'm like halfway through listening to that. And so all of the trailers are like morphing together. But so far, yeah, everything is basically just like Moraine's actually the main character mm-hmm. in in this series. And slight spoilers for, I think, things that I either didn't notice yet or hadn't picked up on. So that's kind of a bummer. But 
Meh. But probably pretty minor ones for the most part, hopefully, or, le- or at least things that um, are probably also given away in the glossary <laughs> at some point in the back of this one. Other than uh, there did seem to be, I recognized at least two scenes that are not in this novel or mentioned directly in this novel that are taken from New Spring, which is the Moraine starring prequel we will get to uh, at some point if if we keep doing this long enough, uh, we, we will one day get there on on how Moraine's uh, career got off to a start, how she became an Aes Sedai, how she got wrapped up in all in all of the plans that are unfolding. Katie or Dan, did you happen to catch any of those various teasers, or are you doing everything you can to avoid spoilers before the show launch? I've been holding off watching any additional footage. I feel like the teaser, to your point, Caleb, had a lot of like story plot line in it already, so... Mm-hmm. I think I got my fill for now and I got a taste of what it'll be like. So I think I'm going to just try getting through the novel as much as possible before we dive into the show. Totally fair. I, I meant to watch the new one, but I, I didn't get to. Um, now I'm like questioning whether I want to, but I, I am. <laughs> but but I think I am excited for the show. So there's like a part of me that just wants to watch it to keep building my excitement. And that will propel <laughs> me as I'm reading as well. Um, but the... The one that I saw before, I was uh, excited by the visuals, um, and I do think it is really interesting, which we already talked about, that it seems to have like the more female-centered uh, characters, and I- I'm excited to see uh, where they go with that. And it's interesting because everything we've read so far has pretty much been, yeah, been focused on our one male character, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and I- I'd forgotten there was that additional teaser prior about Moraine's arrival in the two rivers Mm -hmm. and we talked about this briefly in chat but I don't think mentioned it on the show that they appear to be doing away completely with any mystery element of Moraine's arrival there's none of the I forget what her what miss is it mistress Alice is or Elise is that her usual go-to nom de plume or or uh, or Mm-hmm. Town, townie pseudonym none of that she like comes striding in to the, to the inn after like land land like comes in as the the forerunner almost like like samurai movie or western style like cowboy boots all, all creaking on the floor everyone goes quiet at the strange figure with his katana at, at his side looking around announces moraine sadai uh, who come comes in and you've got the what the serpent ring on her finger very obviously and and she's immediately like uh, announcing to everyone that that big things are going down so they're doing away with that and getting us right into uh, un- unless that trailer is complete misdirection which would be strange i think they're like no let's just get right into it we have a lot of ground to cover in the first episode of this show we have to burn yeah. down the two rivers by within this hour by the end of episode one and jumping forward from there we are today going to burn right through with chapter 16 the wisdom Keely, would you mind uh, reminding us uh, what happens in this one? Especially since for, um, for us in particular, we, we read this a few weeks ago with aspirations of getting to it even faster. Uh, but what happens in chapter 16? Yeah, so Nynaeve arrived where I forget where they are in chapter 16. In Berlin still? And yeah, so she shows up and she's like claiming that she's going to take everyone home and that um, like they shouldn't have been forced to come with these strangers. Um, and then she, it's a, it's a lot of her, but we also learn a little bit more about the White Cloaks mm-hmm. and that there's something going on with Rand again, where I think it was like the previous chapter where he was mouthing off to a White Cloak mm, and it kind yeah. of seemed like he was a different person. So like he's kind of getting that vibe again. And then we learn more about 
Min's character. And we get Moraine's typical acceptance when Nynaeve arrives. Like, not only the it's part of the pattern thing, right? But she jumps right to saying that she, meaning Nynaeve, is part of it, right along with the rest of you. It's, for me, very difficult even now at this point in this novel, without remembering the details of of our later uh, Moraine-focused story, to know how much of this she has planned for, how much of this she has anticipated, how much of this she has caused, and how much she is just taking and going with the flow as, you know, the wheel weaves as the wheel as the wheel wills, as she is fond of saying. Seems to be a healthy blend. A little bit of like wheel turns and we're it's kind of in motion already, so it doesn't really matter. And then some is like thought out ahead of time and then it just kind of all mm-hmm churns together and I don't know she kind of takes things in stride I was thinking how interesting it is how many times in the book it's like commented on in the narration that she has a calm voice and that nothing surprises her Mm. and uh I I feel like that just happens over and over again and that I think like begs the question Caleb that you asked like is it that she knows what's gonna happen or is she just Mm -hmm. really good at accepting everything as it comes along um I'm not sure but I, another thing I was thinking about is it's interesting to me how skeptical Nynaeve seems about Moiraine. Like, because Nynaeve has the powers too, and uh, I don't know, I just, I feel like she would be a little Un- bit... Unknown to her at this point. Oh, so right? she doesn't know about her connection to that. Is that correct? Oh, to the, to the one power? No, no, certainly not. She, she, oh. she at this point would be, a, would be appalled to hear that. Okay, all right. Well, that makes a lot more sense to me because it. I was like, she's so skeptical, but okay, I understand. That makes that makes more sense. It seems like, uh, I don't know. I expected her to be like a little bit more supportive once she found out all the information, but it seemed like mm. she didn't really get get that way. Well, we sort of learned from her perspective the the kids were all kidnapped, right? It's kind of how she sees <laughs> sees it. There was not like a there's not a farewell. There was no assent by uh, the women's circle or the village council to any of this happening. Like they they were spirited off in the night. Moraine does sort of take her aside, right, to try and give her some sort of explanation. Though I don't know if we know everything that's exchanged between the two of them at this point. Any other thoughts on this chapter? It's probably. One of the shortest yet, I think, 16. Well, is it in this chapter or like a following one where they do mention Tam? So like Rand's dad, like he Mm -hmm. knows where like that they're leaving. And Mm so I just I my note, my only notes for this chapter was not a fan of her (laughs) of (laughs) showing up and being like, I know better than everyone and I'm not going to listen to anyone. Your opinions are invalid. Doesn't matter what you say, because I know better. (laughs) It's like. First of all, I freaking hate that. And second of all, like, it just, it, mm. it kind of like going back to what we said before about how, like, you know, we even saw it play out with, like, in real life, the Salem witch trials and all that, where, like, you assume that these people have so much power and you're going to egg them on as if they don't. And so it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I kind of want at some point for someone to just be like, oh my God, and just like burst someone into flames just to get <laughs> through that. So they talk about, I think about Tam. And so, I feel like he's supposed to be kind of like really esteemed in the two rivers, but somehow yeah. anything he has to say to Nynaeve about like what's going on was just like, 
Who cares? Something my partner Eric raised offline talking about his impression of the chapter so far. He's formulating a longer uh, question and like series of things he wants to put to the show to have, have us all get into. But he has been commenting a lot on the early chapters, especially as he goes through speaking of the gender dynamics that we've come on before, that there's a lot of sense in which his mind, like the, the women of the village, especially uh, particularly of the two rivers, maybe. We don't really know how widespread this portrayal is going to be yet. All seem to have this sort of, they know better than all the men and the men don't know what they're about and the men are all, all have their wool pull, pulled all over their eyes because that's just how men are they you know they they think with their whatever and like whatever other phrases and they're all wool headed and this and that um and the women's council knows what's really going on and yet at the same time we have at this point eric pointed out four or five examples um including Egwene at various places and and Nynaeve here of women from the two rivers just bursting in and dis and completely dismissing everything every everyone else is saying particularly, you know, if it's coming from Tam or one of the other men of the village. And it's almost like this sort of like, this is maybe some, <laughs> maybe a place to talk about very, very briefly, because it'll come back in bigger ways later. The extent to which Robert Jordan has talked about that when he first wrote uh, Eye of the World, all the women he is on record as saying were based on his wife, Harriet, and his sort of co-inventor to, to one extent or another. This is something he has said, I'm like, uh, like uh, almost verbatim, that they were aspects of her personality. And, and, and he said something to the effect in one inter interview of, uh, you know, at that point, oh, you know, I learned everything I know about women from Harriet. And, and, you know, importantly, she is like partly shaping this narrative. She's the editor. She's the one who got the book to happen in the first place. And she's also part of his home D&D campaign uh, where, where they're shaping the characters. I don't know. Any, any thoughts on, on that dynamic and whether there is, there, to me, there's almost maybe this thing of that Eric was hinting at of almost this attempt to to overcorrect for sexism to the degree to which the women of the two rivers all start to become caricatures themselves in this very dismissive way of the idea uh, that that men could ever know what they're talking about or you know also Moraine at this at this point but she is sort of the outsider interloper but like you said the fact that Tam is in a sense a respected village elder and a war hero but his word is apparently good for nothing um, uh, to Nynaeve what do we think about that <laughs> My, my first reaction to, I mean, that's interesting information that the women were all based on different aspects of his wife, but it almost seems like you're saying kind of like reductive, like what they did, she, they just took, he took like one aspect and made it a whole character and then another aspect and made it a whole character. That's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. In connection to this chapter, I, it, it just immediately made me think about the fact that Nynaeve basically ran off because she was like, the men will never get it together to send anyone out. So I'm just going to mm. ignore everything they're doing and just leave uh, on my mission because they're useless. So, yeah. Which I guess she has the authority to do, right? I mean, she's the closest thing to one, like, you know, there's no ruler of the two rivers, but she is the most authoritative voice despite her youth. I was watching Katie's face when, when you said about him making the comments about his wife. Because in my head, I was like, how dare you? <laughs> like, you just hate your wife. It's <laughs> like how I was reading it. Um, but I think that's kind of something that we find is that, you know, anytime that that someone's like, oh, well, I based that character off of this person. It's like it might be very tongue in cheek, but like not knowing mm. their relationship or their dynamics. I'd be like, okay, but like, if my husband wrote about me like that, we'd mm -hmm. have some words. I'd be so pissed. <laughs> so I, I kind of get to an extent what he maybe was trying to do. But I think mm -hmm. in trying to do that, he just kind of fell into all the stupid stereotypes of like, 
you know, the the women say that they know better, but look what's happening. <laughs> yeah, and uh, maybe things will. Maybe I think things do change to some extent inevitably as we go on because a character can't stay a caricature very long if they're going to be a part of of like this grand political threading story. And I and I don't think that holds true for the way that he writes women later or how 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 they continue to develop. But it may, might be an interesting thread to pull on again at time to time as a Jordanism potentially if something brings us there. And yeah, well, I would love to find to get more into in like maybe even at someday a whole Harriet episode because of her really unique role in guiding the series and co-creating it in never directly writing it except for you know but being so heavily editorial and then of course like when when Jordan dies like shepherding what's going to happen to the rest of the story and, and the outlines and putting those together and choosing who is going to finish writing the story because for all that she is a, a passionate editor I don't think she actually enjoys uh, writing prose or, or considers that um, considers that her calling so we get to chapter 17 watchers and hunters this is where the party hunkers down for what's supposed to be a relaxing night of Tom's entertainment he starts putting on a show and of course with Tom singing that means we're getting a whole lot of flavor of the background of the world all these historical and mythic ballads and we maybe start to get more hints of backstory this way very another very Tolkien way of, of giving us a sense of what has gone on in this world before in other ages only for all of this to be rudely interrupted by a merge roll, uh, also called a half man or a fade. There are so many terms for a merge roll. We don't need to go through them all here. Just remember that they uh, they have no eyes and a really, really creepy mouth and pale skin. Nynaeve vows to stick with her village kids and protect them from the Dark One and Moraine alike after this encounter with the Halfman. The party flees Berlin in the night. A lot goes down really quickly. White Cloaks try to stop them, but Moraine's display of the One Power scares them off. The party escapes as the distant inn goes up in flames, and none of them are very happy about the fact that, like, Moraine is kind of forcing them on and leaving poor innkeeper and Sarah and everyone else here to their fate and much, uh, or, or much, mulch, whatever okay. the, our stable boy's uh, name is. Thoughts on chapter 17? To that, that last point you were just mentioning, I, I thought it was kind of interesting they're having this, like, whole debate about, like, the ethics around it. And I, I can mm-hmm. just picture in, like, Moraine's head, she's, like, so frustrated with everything because she's just trying to get from point a to point b and she's like i'll throw some cash at it later but it's like not not essential <laughs> right now <laughs> she's like well we'll worry about that later but she's like everyone's like she, she has a mission she's very focused and everyone else yep. is kind of pissing her off because they're constantly like questioning her with things and she's almost like babysitting everyone to this like location they're trying to get to and the ethics debate like you said like really comes to a head here we could we could say moraine is revealing herself as a pure utilitarian right she has intimated and, and indicated at least in the things she said and some of the things she's done that she will do anything to avoid the wrong ends or to achieve the ends that she is looking for. And granted, from her perspective, those ends involve the potential end of the world, which is a pretty big end. But she has said time and again, and she seems to doesn't and we know she can't lie not directly that there is no no one thing maybe no moral code she will not break aside from her vows to see that thing done and i think that's that's bucking up against here a very different sense of morality from some of the other characters and and you know i don't i don't don't know if we know anyone who like represents like a deontological sense right here, but you know, who certainly believe like, you know, there, there are right things to do and wrong things to do regardless of the consequences. Though Moraine kind of wins the argument by default just through the practicality of uh, what she points out, right? And says, you know, we can, we, I, can, I can make a little difference here. Yeah, we can, we can stop. I can, I can try to surreptitiously put out some of the fire and then we'll be stuck in the city with the uh, Trollocs and Merdral closing in, with the white cloaks breathing down our neck and with dark 
Park friends galore. So you know, up up to you all. Uh, what, what, what's your what's your decision here? Are you going to come with me or not? And that's it's interesting because I don't know. It feels a little black and white at the moment, um, like black and white fantasy. Whereas like some shows that are like there's different factions and you're not sure exactly what the intentions are. Like Game of Thrones is not as transparent. You don't know which house you're supposed to be rooting for a lot of the time, and there's that murkiness. But this this seems a little more just straight up like high fantasy with like the Gandalfs mm-hmm. and everyone. So it feels a little more black and white. So it seems easier to accept her ideology because she's trying to save the world from this dark being. So if she doesn't get her way and she seems to be the most knowledgeable in terms of what needs to be done to fight this dark like lord or like this dark one. So it seems to make sense of just kind of like following along with her ethics there. That's mm. like, yeah, everything's pretty much going to end or going to go to chaos if we don't do this mission. So we just need to kind of follow it to the direction she lays out. Is it really that starkly different in Game of Thrones, though, or at least the first book, I wonder? Because I don't know. I feel like we are very much supposed to root for the Starks early yeah. on and that they are very much posed as, you know, the good noble house in opposition to the grasping, conniving Lannisters and to the hapless Baratheon uh, to, to Rob sort of making a muck of the whole kingdom. And we do have the omnipresent threat of the the others, the White Walkers, this existential threat to all of human existence, also in the north, also beyond yeah. a mountain wall that is guarded by a permanent uh, regime of guardians up there. Like we know the warders here guard up against Sheogul and, and the, the, the fades coming down from there. But the ambiguity kind of comes in in the same way, right? right? With like, we, we don't have Aes Sedai in Game of Thrones, but we do have, I think as Kate, Katie or Keeley pointed out before, we have Melisandre, right? We have the, we have the Red Woman uh, arriving and she is very much opposed to the others and to, um, to that existential evil at the north end of the world. But we immediately start to suspect her methods and what she is willing to do to stop that and what any of the given characters are willing to do to stop that. And, and I mean, I do agree that we have a difference maybe here in that everyone in the Wheel of Time so far takes the Dark One pretty seriously, right? Like whether they're actively doing plots to stop him or not they all acknowledge yeah. he's uh, acknowledge he's real and dangerous yeah it's a, it, like in game of thrones it always seems to kind of be on the back burner and at least mm-hmm. tv show wise it really is on the back burner the entire show here it seems <laughs> to be more front and center more more of like the lord of the ring style where the villain and these inhuman creatures which sometimes feels a way to get feels a little bit like a cop-out to actually having humans fight humans more so because then it's it's easy to kind of justify it because there's these mm-hmm. like creepy there's these like disfigured or like kind of like animalistic creatures yeah. they're fighting so it kind of makes it more black and white and i think that's kind of where i was like that intention and the fact they're actively being pursued by these things and this like mm-hmm. worm like wraith with like teeth all over it seems like pretty easy to tell who's good and who's bad what about the white cloaks and what about the who are who are human and whom we get the sense moraine comes very close to being forced to murder the shit out of here with the one power if things cannot de-escalate uh, in, the, in this sequence. Uh, what do we think of uh, people? Keely, you have brought up several times like what this display is that Moraine does where she makes herself look like a giant mm. um, or turns into a giant one or one or the other. I forget if that becomes clear here. Which, oh yeah, another step in Rand gasped. She was taller, her head level with his where he sat on the gray's back. Shadows clung around her face like thunder clouds. She, oh right, there is, yeah, yeah, one of them, like they, they straight up attack the, the white cloaks here. They're slashing at her. Moraine is bl- blocks one of the blades with her staff and like sparks are hissing in a fountain. And then she gets real, real angry and you dare attack me and her voice roars like a whirlwind. And she looms as high as the town wall. Her eyes glare down a giant 
staring at insects. And so they barely get out of here and without the bloodshed that the white cloaks try to bring it to. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like the children of the light represent at least some sort of ambigu- ambiguity, right? We've talked about them. There, there are, they are our witch burners who are doing it in the service of rooting out dark fiends and stopping the dark one. Um, but on the other hand, maybe that does like, since Moraine is the only Aes Sedai we've seen so far, maybe that does just make a contrast where she starts to seem more obviously the quote unquote good guy. I'm not sure if this speaks exactly to what you're talking about, but I think one aspect that's interesting and maybe more leaning towards Lord of the Rings is that Moraine has been fighting, like she's been in a war for a long time, whereas like Two Rivers has been very protected. It's sort of like different mind frames, you know, when when like you're it, when you're in a war, there's casualties and you have to. Mm. You have to, you know, some people are going to die for the greater good. Um, but then when you're in this like small town, like if you're a hobbit or if you're in two rivers, you just are kind of in this little, you know, paradise where the world isn't really impacting you and you can kind of come to morality in a different sense. Yeah. I don't know. I think the white cloaks are really interesting. I, I'm not sure if I've fully formed an opinion of them, but I think it's an interesting aspect to the story that they're sort of in the middle and that they're attacking, you know, they're trying to find the bad guys but they're doing it in such a way that yeah that they're kind of also the enemy mm-hmm. does anyone feel like they've been a little neutered already like they haven't really done anything extremely threatening it's like the ice that could take care of them pretty easily they're kind of almost more of a mm. nuisance like a bee sting mm-hmm. versus like and they're like okay we're actually getting pursued by trollocs you're not really much of a threat so it's hard to take them seriously so far because they haven't yeah. done anything that actually makes them like it's more so just like don't let them kind of slow us down versus like oh these people could actually like mess mm-hmm. us up and the white cloaks are angry about that right because they've only been permitted to have what is it six or ten people in the city at a given time and they have a whole army camped outside Berlin's wall yeah. that is not being permitted to enter without sparking a war so maybe that starts to hint at where their power comes in in, in numbers um, and, and maybe something that is well you know they, they've existed for a long time as an institution we we know that so something has kept the peace between these two factions the Aes Sedai and then the Children of the Light who both seem to sort of freely roam through the world doing kind of as they please to stop the end of the world from happening we'll certainly see more of that developed later I'm, I'm sure what the dynamics there and we do know like Moraine has her reasons the uh the white cloaks have reasons to be suspicious of the very people who brought about the last end of the world the last time it happens so but they are very much positioned as our antagonist here they're trying to stop our protagonist Dan do you want to recap us on chapter 18 the Camelin Road so the Trollocs are starting to chase the party off the Camelin Road and then they're getting surrounded they hear horns and they they recognize that the the enemy's closing in on them um the party breaks through uh after coming across some trollocs and some fades um in their path and so they're getting they they recognize they're getting surrounded so they they uh, engage in battle and matt um as they're riding up to this foe like matt starts shouting a battle cry in the old tongue um which we aren't yet super familiar with and at the at the moment there he's shouting it doesn't make it as much sense to the reader so they start fighting and during that battle moraine creates an earth uh, earthquake which spouts out fire to delay the trollocs and the fades and they set up a false trail behind them some time to reach the ruins um and in a very again lord of the rings moment they decide to go to a place <laughs> that trollocs will not go yeah, which, yeah. <laughs> instead of a two i i almost laughed at this point because I, I could hear gandalf just being like oh like the whole icy mountain versus yes, going down to the Karad, Mines of Moria. Yep, yeah, yep. I was expecting them to do that because they even mentioned like 
yeah, like mountains and all that, and like snowfall or, or like and like when they're assessing their options, I'm like, are they going to go to the mines of Moria? Uh, but go to a similar place, an ancient city, Eridol, mm-hmm. um, now called Shadar Logoth. At, when I was at the time, I was reading this, just like a point to that. I wasn't, I forget what the significance of that was. So they made it like a huge deal, and it's like the end of the chapter. But I'm not sure. Had we been introduced to this prior? Yeah, I'm see. I don't think so. And I'm seeing other shaking heads. I think this is the first time we get that name. So as far as I can tell, we're just meant to know that this place has another name. The Trollocs are scared of it, and it sounds evil as hell. Shadar Logoth, uh, like it sounds like, you know, it sounds like shadows and it sounds like something Lovecraftian almost, the the, the off part at the end to me, like is oh, it that? Yeah, the way they keep like asking, like he's like, I'm asking the name and he's not getting, I think it's it's either Matt or Rand is just like asking what the name of the place is and doesn't get an answer for mm-hmm. a few times, and then they dramatically say it, so I didn't know if there's like a connotation there that we I was supposed to be picking up on from like a the prequel mm. chapter or something. I felt the same way. I was like looking through. I like went back and I was like, is there some reference to this prior? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I felt the same way. Yeah, I the only thing I can even think of that we would have reason so far would be that we we have some understanding that names have a power in this world or names can draw the attention of things on you. Uh, you know, like in that that Voldemort kind of way, and maybe even this I, I forget if that's a Sauron thing too, but people do seem hesitant to invoke names. Names have power and they can have power over you. They can draw the attention of things. So maybe maybe it's something about drawing the attention of whatever is in Shadar Logoth. But yeah, Dan, I made the same exact notes of, yep, yep, we're still, we're blazing right through Fellowship here. We're getting, you know, we're at least skipping to almost the end of Fellowship. We're in the last act, right? Where we're about to see this episode, the party get separated, um, which is, you know, the conclusion of the Fellowship of the Rings when the Fellowship is broken apart by circumstances. Yeah, and then everybody draws significance to Matt having this moment of shouting the old tongue because none of them speak the old tongue, at least none of the kids from the Two Rivers. We've had various weird moments before um i think uh, maybe is is perrin the only one who hasn't gotten his own specific moment of weirdness yet being seemingly possessed of some personality or aspect that is not quite his own yeah perrin gets pushed to the side a lot (laughs) he hasn't really gotten a chance to flourish with his personality um mostly kind of sits in the back and comments on things now and then but he's more he's been a side piece so far Mm -hmm. ah soon perrin soon hopefully Interestingly, Egwene says to Matt, when you shouted, I thought just for a minute, I thought I understood you, but it's all gone now. So something is happening with all of them, right? Like, yeah. all, like all five of these, these two rivers kids or young adults have something going on. Moraine brings up the old blood still sings thing. Oh, in passing detail here. Oh my God. Speaking of late term fellowship, we're, we're just hitting all the end, end of that book's beats now because we find out, we get the hint from Moraine early on in the chapter. She calls Lan something. Uh, speaking of names, uh, when, when they have to separate momentarily, she says, the light go with you, last lord of the seven towers. Yeah. And if we have not had Aragorn vibes from Lan up until this point, I think this chapter and the sequence of chapters are just cementing in like hard as hell that, uh, yeah, we've, we've got a type here that we are fulfilling. Anybody else have other thoughts on on 19, Shadows Waiting? Yeah, I thought um, that's literally the first thing I wrote is like, okay, Lord of the Seven Towers with no context. (laughs) All right. Um, But then when they're talking to Matt, they said the blood of Aemon still sings. And so Mm. I wrote, oh, Matt's a Targaryen, sick. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that the the scent spell that Mm. 
uh Moraine, Jesus, I couldn't think of her name, that uh that she does was pretty cool to like throw their smell somewhere else so that they yeah. would be able to get away. Um I just kind of again, because like she powers or she like channels power through the staff, so she did this like sick twirly thing with it. But to me that was just like the same as Gandalf like slamming down the staff and saying, <laughs> like, You will not you shall not pass. I got and I got the mm-hmm. same vibe we didn't really talk about it much but the, the whole time that they were like okay you know we have to be super duper quiet like we can't make a noise because then the trollocs will know what they are and <laughs> then like as you get to the end of the chapter they just have a full-on out loud conversation where i think it's like Egwene is like the hell is that like they find the wall and they're just like talking mm. end of chapter and i was like but you just said that they have to be quiet and now you're talking <laughs> <And> so <laughs> um there's little things like that that have been mm driving me crazy and i wanted just to clarify chapter 18 or chapter 17 i mean watchers and hunters lan is it either it's lan or rand (laughs) keeps noticing a dude with a scar on his face and they pointed that out like three or four Mm. times and then the fade shows up so i didn't know if it was supposed to be like one is connected to the other because i think he asks uh like the Uh main guy and he's like oh that's just what's his face but i was like why are they pointing this out it's like we kind of get it that that the author doesn't like people that have visible disfigurements but it's also mm. just kind of like what was that like you can't just be like here's this creepy dude do 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 next scene <laughs> like i want to know what that was well did they tie and i agree that was like cringy like i've been noticing that more and more ever since like the james bond um boycotting um with the disabilities and like disfigurements um but i thought they mentioned that it was some spy or something like they made a comment near the end of the chapter mm. that it was like somebody pointed out that it was like a spy or a member of like was that the white cloaks dude or something but he has some kind of connection mm. though they like i think they make they either oh, make okay. the assumption or they know he's a spy or he's like scouting i've forgotten i think i was getting but that sounds right like maybe he was giving off dark friend vibes like he might be mm. the one reporting mm-hmm. them to the murdral but then it's sort of oh the reveal is more no he's reporting to the white cloaks maybe but but it's been long enough since i've read the chapter that i'm, I'm forgetting they do mention it a lot though so to that point Keely, i definitely agree that like uh it seems like a big plot point and then it doesn't really go very far unless that's the reason the myth shows up yeah and just like how he talked about him was weird because he says you know the man met his gaze and grimace ran looked away in embarrassment maybe Mm. with that scar the fellow could not smile and that's why he's grumpy because he can't Mm. smile like (laughs) shut the hell up oh my god like he's probably grumpy because you're a little asshole staring at him (laughs) like leave him alone yeah Rand Rand doesn't win a lot of brownie points uh, in <laughs> no. these later chapters. I sort of liked him at the beginning because he seemed like a naive little farm boy and now he's just like, I don't know, he's getting yeah. a little agitating as a protagonist. Mm. Yeah. Still a naive farm boy, but we're seeing more of the downside of that in his attitude towards, <laughs> right. uh, towards new experiences and, and new people. Which brings us to chapter 19, Shadows Waiting. Katie, do you want to cap us on this? Sure. Um, and speaking of things that are a little bit irritating, I found this chapter quite irritating. So <laughs> in Shadows Waiting, um, while, while the party rests, um, the boys decide that they're going to go out and explore the ruins of Shadar Lagoth, um, and they just think that that is a fine thing to do, even though they're trying to be safe and rest. Um, and they go treasure hunting, and they meet a weird ghost-like person named Mordeth, um, and they run for their lives when they realize it's probably best not to trust this old dude in, in evil runes named Mordeth. Um, <laughs> Moraine <laughs> explains what his deal is uh, and um, 
and more about this this dead city. So I, I thought that aspect was interesting. Um, so the, the ending redeemed itself a little bit in just understanding what this place is. While Nanive heals Moraine uh, with her herbs, um, and Lan reports the Trollocs have been forced into the city. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the aspect of this chapter that annoyed me was just that they sort of keep disregarding the seriousness of the situation. Um, yeah. And... And I also wasn't sure, I think it is, it's Matt that is all into, let's, you know, let's get the treasure. And um, it just seems like Mm. a terrible idea. And I almost wondered if this was another one of those times where he's being like minorly possessed in a way, or if he just has terrible judgment. I I wasn't sure. (laughs) I will say my impression, and I don't know how much this is colored by later events, is extremely both, uh, both that you know, Matt is, has very poor judgment, but that to me, I get very strong vibes of there be of this city being enchanting in a way and having, um, it, it feels very, oh, I don't know. There's so many stories like this of when you go like in, in older fairy stories of like when you wander near the ruins of the Fae and you start to be enticed in against your better judgment. Or, of course, many times in Lord of the Rings where whether it's the dragon's hoard in The Hobbit or the ring in, in the Lord of the Rings itself or the various places they visit where characters are being drawn in and enticed the dwarves into Moria to wherever else. It feels like there's something pooling them to me. They, they seem to be acting even outside of their own good judgment, but I don't know how much of that I am importing from earlier and from later chapters. So for, from, for all of you, did it register more as them just being idiots and, the, and then just uh, going? <laughs> down along with along into uh <laughs> this ancient treasure room led by a strange extremely pale guy in, in a cloak i i don't think jordan makes it super clear ever like normally if you're getting your characters enticed by some kind of magic or dark power mm-hmm. it's more explicit but i don't know it it seems to always be on the fence about whether or not it's just poor judgment yeah i wrote down that okay uh they basically just climbed into the creepy white van by following this guy because he said there was candy like that definitely is how it felt to me now that you say that though i'm like oh okay so maybe matt is like the boromir where like you want to love him but he's just so like weak (laughs) that's Mm. kind of how i picture boromir is that like you put him anywhere near the source of power and he can easily be manipulated compared to Rand, a.k.a. tiny hobbit boy that's somehow very magical <laughs> and powerful. Yeah, I don't really know. I I love to hate these characters. <laughs> and and so I keep trying to tell myself like, oh, well, they're supposed to be teenagers. No, they're not, though. They're supposed to be a little bit older than that. So oh, no, no, no. They, they are teenagers. They're like 17, thought- 17 or 18. Right, but uh-huh. still, like, on the older end. They're oh, not, yeah, like, 15-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're, you know, they did survive, kind of, you know, even though they were very isolated, they did mm. kind of survive in, like, this general, like, hard life of, like, farming and stuff. But the mm-hmm. tiniest thing is, like, ooh, shiny, and they just want to die. <laughs> and so they feel kind of toddlerish to me, that like, they're trying to constantly kill themselves. Um, so I definitely Wool- agree. Wool-headed witlings, <laughs> as Nynaeve calls them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, once again, it feels very, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, sorry, we're still still so Lord of the Rings mired 
here, but I get the City of the Dead vibes for one thing uh, when we learn the backstory of Shadar Logoth here and you know this whole this city that it, the entire place was cursed by people's mistrust of one another which is you know the, like the the one that Aragorn visits in Return of the King a little different because they betray they did this big betrayal but maybe it's this thing that we learn about Aradol that it was <laughs> jumping around the Lord of the Rings here Mordeth whispered poison in, in King Bowen's ear uh, doing this worm tongue <laughs> thing where, where he arrives yeah. and starts enchanting yeah but we do learn some hints in here of the treasure of Eridol being something that eventually corrupts everyone here and everyone starts to grow like insanely suspicious of each other or or to be more accurate, like everyone develops this extreme paranoia um, and uh, along with what, what feels to me like a sort of magical corruption that Moraine is alluding to. But I agree, Dan, what you're saying about the lack of writing indications for there. I don't know that Jordan is really able to tap into that feeling here in the prose that that enchantment is going on or because the other passage it's mirroring is when the hobbits go down into the the barrows in fellowship of the rings when they go walking down into this tomb full of riches uh where then they almost get killed by ghosts um uh, of this old place but tom bombadil shows up at the last second and saves it not a scene that made it into the movies but very much the scene that happens at this place in fellowship so i don't know this is maybe i think um possibly yeah maybe a little of jordan being at this point out of his element and not having really written the scene to reflect that or maybe it's something that he more that i'm drawing these lines and maybe he sort of retcons it later i i don't know because i think it does eventually to me feel um like that is something shadar logoth does it draws you in and tempts you and, and offers this corrupting influence. Yeah, I think of like, this is from cinema and not books, but Pan's Labyrinth, like when Ophelia mm. is tempted by the like the rich feast set in front of her when she's going down to like the troll's lair um, yeah. and getting the key. There's a really, really good like little subtle moment and it's it's an audio cue, but like she turns around and she's like walking away. And this is what I think of when like the the enchantedness because there's like a hint of mystery whether or not it's her childness and she's just like tempted. But like when she turns around, there's like this little music cue that sounds like like fantasy magic or like getting pulled in and like she has this look on her face and she turns around and there's no audio, no like the. The, I mean, there's no um, like VO like kind of describing what's going on there. You have like that yeah. look and then you have the audio, like the music cue. And like that's enough to kind of understand that this mm-hmm. feast is like pulling her in. And they're like, yeah, Jordan doesn't seem to do that very well. I love that movie. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I should. Uh, now I want to watch it again for Halloween. <laughs> one, of, one of my all, all time. Yeah. One of the best fantasy movies out there. We learned that the reason the Trollocs are so scared of the city is that um, at some point an entire army went into here. Um, we learned more that the entire city was consumed by something called Mashadar or Mashadar. Um, and that the army that entered before, I think it was a Trolloc an enemy at some point, nothing was found of them <laughs> but but blood and, and, we- and weapons, basically, or, or something to that effect. And, and you know, land shows up. Moraine's wards have... have I, th- I think her wards are still up, uh, that she has set the like you know magical detection and, and to hide them from sight of is it she, she hiding them from the city or from the trollocs if should they enter I, I forget because she's she's scared of something in the city and then lan reveals that the merdral forced the trollocs into the city but what forced the merdral that there's something even worse that must be making all of them come into here and then they decide <clears throat> to follow moraine's original plan to make a break for is it for another river that they're going for from the mm-hmm. Saldea. They want to hail Trader's boat because Trollocs and Merdral loathe deep water, as we've learned. They're terrified of it. They can't swim. They they won't go into it. Um, so it'll take them some time to cross there. So we're going to do another river crossing, but things go very wrong 
in chapter 20, uh, Dust on the Wind, where we learned what Mashadar is or what it incarnates as the um, whatever this is, this this force that infected the whole city is now a murderous mist that floats around with tentacle like appendages of some sort that reach that reach out and it seems to be blind but it can seek and it can maybe has other senses for knowing that people are near and touching it we learned very quickly is extremely fatal and uh, a, a lot of chaos goes down the party gets separated throughout the mist Perrin and Egwene reach the river Saldea only to get tossed in uh, and immediately swept away in the current Rand, Matt, and Tom escape to find refuge aboard the Spray, a riverboat captained by an alienaire named Bale Doman. So things are happening very quickly again. One of those chapters where just like on horseback, things are thundering. Uh, lots of lots of Trollocs are dying. Uh, and we, we get the, the, the current form, besides more death, of the evil of Shadar Logoth revealed. Can I say it's been nice that these chapters are like, I don't know, they've been flowing so much faster. It feels like they're actually getting into the action feels more fantasy and less just like ins and like background and i don't know it, it's nice to finally be diving into some action like a mm-hmm. few chapters ago when they got into their first battle i'm like wow they're actually seeing fighting and somebody could get hurt or something i don't know it like started to make them feel a little more vulnerable than they have been because they've just been protected by this Aes Sedai and powerful like ward and now they're starting to like be more vulnerable and in more precarious situations so i don't know it makes it easier for me to read because I, I feel a little more engaged with even though we've talked about how they're like not the most likable protagonists, um, some of them, like I like the I like the like the women. They're all like interesting, but like the boys have not been the best. But I still care about like what's going to go on with them. And we get our first very very brief perspective change. We do jump into parents' head. Speaking of the boys, for a fleeting moment here, which at this point almost just feels like I I struggle to see why this is the place where. We branch off other than Jordan just could not find a way for Rand to know about what's happening with with uh, Perrin and Egwene here in this moment. And it just sort of forces him out of that first perspective. That, that I don't know if that's true of the way he's writing the story, but that's kind of what it feels like to me at this point. I don't otherwise I, I struggle to know what is so significant about this moment for Perrin that it would be the first place we jump into his head or, or any other character's head since the prologue, which we will do a lot more of um and the both in this book and in in future books uh, like i said by the second or third book rand is a minority point of view character um he's like the fifth place in word count or or chapter count um but i don't know did any did anybody find any anything about this that seemed i mean it's very action-packed it's a very a big moment but are we just doing a camera change here because the camera needed to show us what was going on perrin and Egwene. i agree i thought it was just necessity which is okay knowing that the book will have point of view shifts um, throughout. I guess it's okay to, to do it out of just necessity because the characters got separated and how are we going to find out about what, what, what these other characters are mm-hmm. up to? Rather than just recapping it all for us later whenever they inevitably meet up again. I guess that, that's one of the traditional methods where <laughs> you find that you meet them again however many chapters later and then you go into like, now we're going to go back and, and relate that whole story in a series of chapters. Um, so I, get, I, get, I know a lot of people don't like that. So maybe there, there is just some value in, in, in keeping it contemporaneous so that we're staying in the present. Um, even though we haven't done that at this point for 
like Moraine's perspective, for instance, Jordan's been very hesitant to let us know exactly what's going on in, in Moraine and Landsheads, I think, because he's still playing a lot of cards close to his chest. That maybe the show won't from what we've seen so far. That is just going to put them all on the table and, and let us right into that broader perspective really quickly. But yeah, I don't know that I have that much to say about this one. It's an, ac it's an action scene. I think it's a pretty good sequence of action scenes. I agree. It's a week of like characters being pretty annoying, but pretty cool things happening and uh, cool set pieces. And I, I, like, I like the monster of Mashadar. Uh, mm -hmm. whatever it is at least it's stuck in my head for a long time I don't know if that was solely because of this chapter uh, or if it was because it was one of my earlier encounters these sort of eldritch creatures but I, but I like how little we know of it at this point and we know the backstory of what created it but not really specifically or what it is doing we just know that it's hungry and it's a mist and it's moving which I guess is one of my one of my preferred kinds of of monsters for a little okay. bit of horror we get more bargaining scenes everybody's favorite haggling <laughs> moments keely shaking her head at <laughs> what goes down with on on the spray here it's just so lame <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my god it just feels like at points he's just trying to figure out dialogue like i want to include eight thousand characters but i don't really want to separate them out so let's just make this person be like bribe me mm. so that felt kind of lame, but I also tend to latch on to, like, the darker parts of it. So, like, how they describe the Fade and this creepy old man figure that, like, just basically, like... Okay, so we've been watching uh, What We Do in the Shadows, the the show version. Yes. And it's it's very... That whole scene was very Laszlo screaming bat and then turning into a bat and flying <laughs> away when Mordeth became, like, a ghost. A and, like, got, like, sucked through the cracks in the walls or something. Like... I just thought that was so cool, but and then so then they're like, okay, well let's bring in back bribes again, and I was like, oh <laughs> my god. Um, but I did want to say that for chapter nineteen, they indicated that Lan and Moraine are linked somehow mm. because so the kids are idiots and they go running away, but the adults let them run away and they got mad at them after the fact. And when they they come back. Then Moraine was like, oh, well, he's out looking for you, but I don't know where he is, but I can feel that he's near. And it's, it's like indicating that they are somehow linked, but they haven't mm. really gone into that. So I hope that they're going to like explain what that is a little bit more because um, that made me feel kind of icky about Moraine. Wait, I, 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 like, think, I don't mean to cut in there. I think they did, though. Did, or was that I have such a hard time like between what's been spoiled from just like show news versus the book. I I swear one of the oh, okay. earlier chapters they mentioned Aes Sedai are linked to like the wards so like Lan and Moraine have to a the connection. Yeah, the warders. But I don't, I don't think we knew what that meant, right? Like just Was it in the, the glossary maybe? I think like mm. like when that one section uh. Katie and I look forward there's like <laughs> I'm they mentioned that like the warders are like connected like there's one for like an Aes Sedai or something. There's like there's oh, some okay. kind of connection there. And if but one I've, been, of them... I've been trying not to like I think oh, yeah. if one of them dies, the other one knows immediately or something like that. I think you're right. We may have read it in the glossary. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yeah. I just flipped to the back to look at how they're describing the warders. It says it's a warrior bound or bonded to an Aes Sedai. The bonding is a thing of the one power. By it, he gains such gifts as quick healing, the ability to go long periods without food, water, or rest, and the ability to sense the taint of... <laughs> Of the dark one at a distance. I'm a child. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, we're, we're going to be saying that word a lot later. <laughs> but it's just like, but why are they bonded? How are they bonded? Are they bred to be bonded to these women? Are they slaves? Because like that feels so gross to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think we've gotten that far. But I do think I remember them mentioning it, and why we looked in the glossary was because she was like giving them like 
cap those caffeine boosts and i think it was mentioned around mm-hmm. that time frame when she was like boosting him up and they had like a connection and they made like a brief mention to it but they haven't really alluded to why there's like a connection yeah it says i just saw at the bottom describing it ethically the water must accede to the bonding but it has been known to be done involuntarily like <laughs> oh great <laughs> mm, problematic eyes to die i guess we'll, uh, <laughs> i guess we'll learn more more of that as we go on. i mean who can know at, at this point uh, the dynamic between lan and moraine i think in chapter 19 and 20 is shown at maybe it's most vulnerable and there are moments of what looks like tenderness or affection between the two not necessarily like i don't think we have any clue what kind but you know where they're like touching foreheads at the one point and Moraine kind of whispering a farewell to him and a take care of yourself kind of thing and, and him doing the same in turn but yeah I don't, at this point I don't know that we know like what is a part of the bond what is not like how they entered into this we really know almost nothing about land so that may, may be something we have to find out a little later because next time we're reading chapters 21 to 25 and our perspectives finally do split good and true if i'm not mistaken we're get we're getting we're getting into another head i'm glancing at the first page of 21 dare i hope we get into nynaeve's head for this one i honestly don't remember because this is the first week where i haven't wound up uh reading a little <laughs> bit ahead i think we'll learn some very interesting things about our main characters not named randall thor here if memory serves from decades ago this episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly Truly, you can find me at twitter.com slash Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you online? You can find me at katiejarvis.com or at 30 in LA on Instagram. Dan, where do you hang out on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handle PansyDan or on my website, danwimble.com. And Keely, what about you? Where, where are you located digitally? Yes, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Keely underscore Reed. Remember, you can find all of us at wattcast.net and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 a month at the Two Rivers tier really helps us keep doing this. Join us at the $5 Tower Volunteer and you'll soon get access to hopefully our Dune bonus episode. You can also support us by leaving Wattcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. This helps a lot and is the number two way we find new listeners. The number one way, tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us. And that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell. Have you all read, I forget, have you all read Dune? Am I the only one who hasn't? Like, should I be trying to like speed read? Okay. <laughs> I, no, I read I'm, it a million years ago. I'm only like 200 pages into it. I read the first three, I think I finished like a year ago. So that means my memory mm. is like 
okay. Like that's not that long ago, but it, it also wasn't like last week. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's so much. Yeah, I didn't know I feel if you like... guys were going to be talking about both together. And I'm like, I haven't read the book yet. Oh, are you averse to, I mean, you know, the, the movies are not holding anything back in terms of spoilers at, at all. It's well, more for just the, like for details, the second but... half. I, I was, I was hoping to read the book before the first, like seeing the, the new movie, but I didn't, but oh, okay. now, now that I know it's only half of the book, I can read the other half and still enjoy that. Like okay, spoiler well, free. So. And I, I mean, watched, most... I'm not watching Lynch until I read the book. Cause I, I heard Lynch. Okay. Like Covers changes or spoils a lot, yeah. I mean, I we, I think we mostly not spoil anything. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll have plenty to talk about just in what the movie covers, right? Because um, I uh, also did want to talk. Uh, like, I'm sure I will. Like, I'll bring up things about Lynch Dune um, uh, and, and or, or like the, the 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 movie history of trying to get a, a Dune movie made and what's been involved. Yeah. But there's no no need to get into what happens after where the Villeneuve movie leaves off, I think, to talk about oh, it. Speak, I, speaking I of, I found, Caleb, you're not the only Lynch fan for the the Dune movie. I found... Oh, I know. There's dozens of us. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to like my coworkers about it. He's like, I like the Lynch version much better. I'm like, wow, it's like it's always rare to find that. <laughs> Lynch uh, well, doesn't even like the Lynch version. <laughs> no, but but he has good reason. They they were yeah. just awful to him on that production. That that is definitely something I w- le- wanted to get into. How much it sound like he had a worse time than um, Yadorowski trying to get his made. But I mean, to be to be fair, Dan, I do have them both rated the same on Letterbox. The the Lynch one and the the Villeneuve <laughs> one. That just sounds like I'm more glowing about Lynch because people hate a lot of people hate that movie and critics hated it yeah. at, at the time. Uh, whereas I, and then so I went into that thinking it was going to be like real terrible, and I was like, oh my god, I'm really enjoying large parts of this, and I think that he does really interesting things, bringing the world alive and the aesthetics of this are and and oh my god, the theme song is incredible. I've already forgotten the music in the new one because the the because we went and watched the Lynch one again, and the music is. It's the the Brian Eno and Toto soundtrack, like the band Toto. I bless oh the rains <laughs> down in Africa, just symphonic <laughs> shredding. Anyway, oh, I should I should save that for. But yeah, we we don't have to spoil what happens after. There's so much like Dune. Dune is like so much plot. There's like unlimited amount of plot to talk about, and you still like wouldn't talk about yeah. all of it. Um, I'm gonna pop off, guys. Have a good week. Bye, Katie. You too. You Happy too. Halloween. Oh, you too. Oh yeah. Bye. Happy Friday, everyone. Thanks, bye. Boo. <laughs>